Hello, everybody, and welcome to Floor Fight, the Post Rider serialized podcast in which each season we assemble a politics bracket and pit our contestants against each other to crown the ultimate winner. I'm your host and your announcer, Michael Levito. Love that enthusiasm, Mike. I'm your other host and your floor manager, Lars Emerson. Welcome to the podcast and to the exciting duel we have before us. We have 24 entries remaining after our first part of the second round, so we are ready to wrap up round two here. Well, it's not really a duel so much as a series of duels. Ah, indeed. Um, because we will, uh, this episode feature eight matchups between losing presidential candidates, because the premise of this show is to pit them against each other to find out who was the greatest president we never had. Reminder for our listeners how this works. We started with the 56 runners-up in the competitive U.S. presidential races, plus 16 of the top third and fourth place finishers, eight of whom won their play-in games to make it into the top bracket. All candidates have been seated based on their percentage of the popular vote. So you may remember Samuel Tilden, who was our top number one seed because he won the highest percentage of the vote. He lost in our last half, unfortunately. So our top number one seed is out. But as we go through each matchup, we will introduce the candidate, the year, their seed, who they were bested by, and give some context on that election. Then, Mike, you and I will debate the merits of each before crowning that round's champion. If we cannot agree, we will flip one of those magical coins that decide elections in Virginia. Back to you, Mike. (laughs) Thank you, Lars, and thank you to the listener. Yes, you, the listener who can follow along with our live updating bracket on our website. You just have to go to thepostwriter.com slash floorfight to see the seeds, victors, upcoming matches, and to follow along with us each step of the way. All right, so let's, let's get down to it and get into the second part of the round of 32. Thanks, Mike. So we're kicking off our our last half of round two here with number one seed Richard Nixon. A reminder, that is from the election of 1960 versus Benjamin Harrison. Kind of a surprising victor from our first round, who is a number eight seed. Yeah, so uh, let's start off with talking a little bit about our first seed, Richard Nixon, who was, of course, Dwight T. Eisenhower's vice president at this time. And the thing about his campaign in 1960 is that he really kind of just ran on the coattails of Eisenhower for a little bit. You know, he argued that he was more experienced than his opponent, John F. Kennedy, because he had served as vice president and had had to deal with, you know, foreign policy issues. He'd also, of course, spent a lot of time in Congress before that. Um, He also ran on anti-communism. He was kind of an ally of Joseph McCarthy at the time, but of course not so much of an ally that it became an issue for him later on. And he also had some sort of like very broad, actually some racially progressive things, like his vice presidential candidate, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., actually said that they would have make sure that there was a black cabinet member in their cabinet. Of course, the presidential election 1960 was very, very, very close. Um, not close enough that it that all those varies will let me get to the Wikipedia page on time so I can remember exactly how close it was. 
Nixon won 49.5% of the votes, which was less than JFK, who won 49.72%. Of course, there were you know, whispers of maybe some dead folks voting in Illinois that would have cost Nixon the election. But being the classy gent that he is, he chose not to make a stink about it because he thought the presidency was just too important. Um, yeah. For all for all the th- all the lessons we should take from uh, Richard Nixon about what not to do, maybe that's one thing that we should do. He he was certainly a patriotic loser. Yes. Um, okay. Let's let's briefly talk about Harrison. Like I said, this was kind of a surprising win last time. He defeated Adlai Stevenson in '56 to progress to this round. He was president during the election of 1892, and he lost to. Grover Cleveland in Grover Cleveland's comeback tour. Cleveland had lost to Harrison the election prior. So Benjamin Harrison, his presidency is in the middle of the Cleveland presidencies. Harrison had a lot of pretty significant economic legislation. There was the Sherman Antitrust Act. There's National Forest Reserves, federal education funding. He was also in favor of uh, voting protections for African-Americans. Harrison did not play ball with kind of the GOP orthodoxy on appointments. He felt compelled to kind of run for president again because of that. And, you know, he, he would lose to Cleveland in that 1892 election. He got 43% of the vote. Cleveland got 46% of the vote. Uh, that was the same election where James B. Weaver won 8.5% of the vote, you may remember. But but Cleveland did end up winning. Why uh, why did we... We, we <laughs> ended up pretty, like, happy with Harrison, I, I want to say. We... Gave him quite a debate against Stevenson, but I think by the end we were like, Harrison actually very genuinely deserved another term. And that may have been yeah. anti-Cleveland, but... <laughs> it may have been. I really can't remember off the top of my head. I think part of it was like we were kind of charmed about this idea that he felt like he had to run for president because, <laughs> right. he, w- could, because he wasn't corrupt enough for everybody else. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I, I think it's kind of hard to argue with a lot of his, his policy. I mean, like, I don't know, you might not like tariffs. Or the gold standard, but, you know, labor rights are good. I think paying veterans' pensions are good. I actually think we'd probably be better off if there was more federal oversight of elections. Certainly we would have been in the 1880s when, Mm. you know, there was lots of nasty machinations going on in the states to make sure that not everybody could vote. Right. The Antitrust Act is good. Forest reserves are good. You know, voting protections are good. So I I think he did a lot of good, but it's interesting, right? Because it's like comparing him to Nixon... For all of Nixon's faults, he's kind of like a titan of history. <laughs> right. And are we, do we feel comfortable having him lose to Benjamin Harrison? <laughs> so we were, I will say we probably went with Harrison much more easily than we went with Nixon. We gave Nixon probably more shit than he deserved against John Anderson in the first round. Mm-hmm. We almost flipped a coin, but we ultimately kind of came down. It's like John Anderson was perhaps not quite ready to be president and Mm -hmm. maybe nixon would not have if nixon doesn't lose the election of 1960 maybe he's like a less suspicious guy (laughs) yeah and you know i don't know the 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 foreign policy you need a a steady foreign policy hand i think in the 1960s more than you do in Mm -hmm. the 1980s and that, that was kind of our big final moment in round one is we were like john anderson is really not ready for some of these foreign policy things whereas richard nixon Mm -hmm. very clearly was and i you know we hesitantly went with both of these guys nixon and harrison i think we made a much more positive case for harrison actually though 
But I also think Nixon in 1960 through like 68 could have been a better president. You get a lot of stuff sooner that you may not have had, including perhaps, you know, removal from the gold standard, much to Benjamin okay. Harrison's chagrin. I don't know. True. You, you asked a series of three questions when we were advancing with Nixon, right? You were like, do you still get civil rights legislation? And we were like, yes, mm-hmm. but it'll be later, which was not good. That was a strike against him. Do you get the space program? Yes. Do you get the Great Society? And we kind of said, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Give me your read, Mike. So it sounds like you want to do you. You want to go forward with Nixon. I actually am leaning more towards Harrison at the moment. I'm kind of waiting to hear what you think. Wait, say that again. You're leaning more towards I'm, Harrison. I'm right leaning now? more towards Harrison. He I, okay. I, I I do not think Cleveland was a good president. I think he was generally mm. on the wrong side of history. I think JFK. I hesitate to say JFK was a good president. I, I think he was president. I think I would say that. Um, right, yeah. <laughs> he, he didn't do anything, like, horribly bad, but he mm-hmm. also, did, I don't know, he didn't, like, do anything significantly terrific either. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's there's almost, I have this kind of, like, a house of car, or more of, like, a Jenga set mentality mm. to it, where it's, like, this is actually not a very good metaphor, but it's basically <laughs> where it's, like, okay, if I take away the... John F. Kennedy piece of the Jenga set and replace it with Richard Nixon. You know, that's one thing. I I feel like that piece of the Jenga set is probably in a more precarious position than the the Grover Cleveland piece of the Jenga set's in. You know what I mean? Sure. I feel like there's more at stake (laughs) in the Kennedy. And granted, you know, Kennedy didn't get to serve a full term. We can sort of talk all day about whether or not he should get credit for all the things he gets credit for, blah, blah, blah. But I just feel like, you know, the early 1960s are such a vital and delicate time in American history. And do I want to roll the dice on somebody, on, on somebody else to handle that, right? It's like, for all of the sort of, you know, tumult that would go on to happen and everything that's happening now, I think we generally made it out okay. Right, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess you have to kind of think, does the assassination of Kennedy make the nation more turbulent? Yeah, but I I don't know. It's like, is there an assassination on Nixon? (laughs) Like, you know, it's... But I don't don't think replacing Kennedy with Nixon is going to sound a little cruel. I don't think avoiding the Kennedy assassination is a good enough reason to not go with John F. Kennedy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is all to say that I think that Harrison is a less risky choice... (laughs) Which is why I think you should move on. Yes, I, I actually think we can make a better positive case for Harrison. You know, I mean, Harrison was, uh, granted, he's a Republican at this time, which is, I guess, what you'd sort of expect from any Republican president. But, you know, the, the voting rights enforcement for African-Americans at this time is, is not nothing. That's that's massive. I mean, think about how much further he could have gone given a second term. I think Harrison is more deserving of a second term than Nixon is of being president eight years earlier. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm good with, with Harrison advancing in, in this somewhat upset. Yeah, I so am I. All right. Let's move on to the next round. We have number five seed, Thomas Dewey in 1944 versus Martin Van Buren in 1840, who was a number four seed. These are, that's a close close matchup there. Yeah. So Thomas Dewey, we talked a lot about him, not our last episode, but in when he was first introduced to this bracket. And so he was, of course, governor of New York. He was like leader of the moderate internationalist wing of the Republican Party. Think Eisenhower, think Wendell Wilkie, another <laughs> entry into this bracket. And as such, he, he actually mostly agreed with FDR, who he would end up losing to, on most foreign policy issues. 
but he just didn't like the Democratic Party, basically. He thought they were corrupt. He thought the New Deal was inefficient and communistic and generally wanted sort of smaller government and like a less regulated economy. And his, his whole argument was basically, it's like, you know, it was 1944, we were nearing the end of World War II. And he was like, we had Roosevelt do his thing in the war years. Who do you want to lead you out of it? Who do you want mm. to help construct this great new post-war order? Well, the answer, of course, people said was Roosevelt <laughs> because Dewey only got 45.9% of the vote. And of course, the people would not really get Roosevelt because he would pass away shortly thereafter and Truman would become president instead. Dewey would run again against Truman. That's true. So. And then, yeah, and then they, they decided they liked Truman enough to give him <laughs> another crack at it later. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Martin Van Buren in 1840. So, Van Buren was president in this point. Uh, he's a name we have a lot in here as well. Um, in 1840, there was this, this economic peril. Uh, there were debates over westward expansion and slavery. Van Buren supported an independent treasury system, storing funds and vaults rather than banks. He refused to admit Texas as a slave state, but he was hurt by deflation. And in the election of 1840, he lost to William Henry Harrison. Van Buren got only 46.8% of the vote in that election. And the Whig Harrison became president. So who would have made a better president, Mike? Dewey in 1944 or Van Buren in 1840? That's an interesting question, Lars. If only someone had a podcast to answer these questions for us. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm sure there is some place where I could find this. But, like, I almost want to know more about, like, what Thomas Dewey wanted to roll back in the New Deal, you know? Yeah. And if I had foresight, I probably would have tried to find a a more exhaustive source on that. But I unfortunately didn't have the time. We talked about how we we think Thomas Dewey is, like, pretty interesting and and we Mm kind of like him. That that is one thing that would give me pause, right? Because back in the 40s, like, I want to, like, reform the New Deal or whatever. That would mean everything from, like, oh, I want, like, to not pack the court and then also maybe not, like, pay farmers to just, like, pour milk into wells right. to, like, control prices. And then it could also mean, like, I think we should abolish Social Security, <laughs> right? <laughs> but uh, on that same side, there's Martin Van Buren, who, I mean, I like that he he liked an independent treasury system. And I like that he didn't want to admit Texas as a slave state, but... It's, it's curious, right? Because he's a Democrat when he has these very chilly views towards slavery. And of course, the Democrats would become the party of the slaveholders, basically. And so maybe having a Democrat who is against slavery in the White House for one more term is helpful. But of course, that doesn't really abolish slavery or get rid of the slave power, just kind of lets it stay there. And maybe, I don't know, it's like, do you avoid the Mexican-American War? Because John Tyler, who, of course, you take over from William Henry Harrison, is the one who actually annexed Texas and then Polk executed the war. So I don't know. And we have Van Buren also against Zachary Taylor, at least, in 1848. Martin Van Buren runs mm-hmm. as the free soil candidate. I think we should go with Van Buren here. And really? And I say that because we liked Dewey, but we liked mm. Dewey in 48. He advanced in 44 because he was actually up against William Henry Harrison in the first round. Mm. But we sort of agreed that FDR and therefore Truman deserve like to end the war and like see their yeah. vision like finalized. Mm-hmm. And that like putting Dewey in right there was probably... Would it have been fine? Yes, I actually mm. think it would have been fine. <laughs> yeah. But... I, I think you do need that Truman wrap up to the to the war, and you know just let him just let him finish it. 
Like, <laughs> it's such a nice, like, turning point in in the post-war kind of era is 44, is that election. Yeah. Don't change the horses in midstream. As, right, uh, right. The Roosevelt campaign said. It's funny how I, I feel like we, we've gotten to this point where it's like, when you think of, like, a thing like this, this bracket, it's like, you think, oh, like, what, what great historical wrongs can we write? Yeah. But now I feel like we're like, okay, like, what, <laughs> like, what can we preserve and, like, do the least damage to? Right. <laughs> is this how these first two matchups have gone? Right. Um, which is, like, maybe not as exciting. But I, I think you've persuaded me on Van Buren. You know, because William Henry Harrison is not, like, a, a good president. <laughs> He he certainly was president, like JFK, but he's not... I don't think you'll ever convince me that he was good at it. And I think Dewey would have been a good president in 1949 and on. I don't think this is his time. And I think Martin Van Buren deserved a second term. Yeah, I can't get down with that. Okay. Well, lucky for you and our listeners, Mike, in the next matchup, we have a number (laughs) six seed, Thomas Dewey in 1948, versus a number 14 seed... Teddy Roosevelt from the 1912 election. Yeah, so you know how in 1944 we said that Thomas Dewey called the the Democrats communists? Well, in 1948, he actually (laughs) ran against the Red Scare and Red Baiting. So I guess he he thought he was going a little too far to the right for the American people after they voted Roosevelt into an unprecedented fourth term. But the thing about this campaign is he really didn't offer a whole lot of ideas. He spoke in a lot of platitudes and like optimistic rhetoric. And the Congress at the time was controlled by Republicans and they were kind of called the do-nothing Republicans because they didn't really do anything. Um, I wonder what that's yeah, Yeah, right. Um, and do just kind of campaign on like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to unify the country, but without really saying how. I mean, he did say he wanted to expand social security, which I guess kind of answers my earlier question. He, he did actually want to fund public housing, expand civil rights legislation, and promote the health and education of the country by for the federal government. But again, not a lot of details. And in fact, one writer said that no presidential candidate in the future will be so inept that four of his major species can be boiled down to these historic four sentences. Agriculture is important. Our rivers are full of fish. You cannot have freedom without liberty. Our future lies ahead. Yeah, well, a slightly more exciting candidate, Teddy Roosevelt in 1912. We've talked about this election a few times because we've had a few losers from this election. Reminder for our listeners, Teddy Roosevelt was president. He then stopped being president and said Taft should be president. Then Teddy thought Taft wasn't a good enough president. So in 1912, he ran against Taft in the Republican primary and Teddy lost that primary and he is a little bitch so he starts his own <laughs> he starts his own party to run against taft in a general election completely split the vote against taft so uh woodrow wilson would win but teddy roosevelt was running <laughs> mike really likes that every time i say it. i mean i you know i th- what else would you call this president who was famously very physically fit <laughs> and a war hero but a little bitch <laughs> yeah i don't know Teddy Roosevelt was running on, on, you know, that eight-hour workday, federal regulation, social insurance, but Taft and Teddy split that vote. Roosevelt got 27% of the vote. Taft got 23%. So the Democrat Woodrow Wilson won 40 states and the election. Yeah. All right. So now we've got the better Dewey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Let's talk. Let's, let's the deal. The better Dewey. The better Dewey, apparently the vaguer Dewey as well. So I was, I've been thinking about this, right? And I think, and this also kind of has given me like another idea for a podcast, but we'll talk about that off air. But I think that if I were alive in like 1948, 
like I would have been like a Dewey Republican. Like, I, I think if you factor in just kind of like my family background and think my sensibilities in general, like there's something that I find very appealing and interesting about these sort of like liberal internationalist, eventually Rockefeller Republicans of like the mid 20th century. And I think it'd be cool if one of those, I mean, like Eisenhower was technically one of them, right? Even though he was not sort of a traditional politician, but that's like how his viewpoints basically aligned. You know, we're saying who is the greatest president we never had. I don't know if Thomas Sue is the greatest president we never had, but he is definitely the one I would be most interested to see be president just because of the ripple effect it could have had in the future, right? Like, what does that do to the conservative wing of the Republican Party? I mean, granted, it, when Eisenhower became president, they viewed it as a setback for themselves, but in 1980, it was kind of a moot point. Mm. But I don't know. It, it, I would just be very curious to see what happened. And it's like one of those things, too, where you think about what Truman did and I like Harry Truman. Do you think about what he did in the second term? And it's like, are these things that Dewey would not have done? Would Dewey have desegregated the military? I tend to think he would. How would he have acted in Korea? I don't really know. I, I can't imagine it probably would have been very different, honestly. Dewey is probably slightly less gun-happy than Truman, don't you think? Yeah, probably. But I don't know. I feel like lots of politicians back then were very gun-happy. Um, I mean, Truman was like, he disliked guns enough to fire General MacArthur when he was like, you know what we should do? Invade well, China. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> um, well, speaking of very gun-happy politicians, I am actually completely sold on this. I do not think Teddy Roosevelt should advance. I think we've made actually an uncomfortably sane and reasonable case for why Woodrow Wilson absolutely should have been president, Yeah, uh, which is an unfortunate takeaway. I, I think we've made that case pretty consistently and effectively. I don't know. We were not kind of Taft. We were okay with Roosevelt, kind of. Mm -hmm. But at, in unpacking that 1912 election, every time we've said, like, Wilson should have won. Yeah, And it's ultimately better that Wilson won. Because I don't think Teddy Roosevelt, well, he probably gets you into World War One sooner. Mm -hmm. I don't He'd been president already. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he has chance. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Also, I mean, like, because I'm looking at it now and it's like, you're, the argument would be like, oh, well, you know, he, he wanted all these sort of like labor protections and stuff. It's like, yeah, you know who else did? Woodrow Wilson. Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and you know who also got him done? Woodrow Wilson. Right. And you know who I think would probably be like more likely to send American troops to World War One before we were ready for it? Teddy Roosevelt. Right. right? I also don't. Probably would have invaded Mexico after the Zimmerman telegram. Right. I also don't want to reward this behavior that Teddy has of, like, running against your own party's president, who you fucking picked. You don't get special... You don't get to run in your own little party for that. I don't want to reward him. I think Dewey should advance. Our fervent defender of the two-party system in smoke-filled rooms, Lars Emerson, I am. has spoken. Speak now or forever hold your peace, Mike. No, no, I, I agree that Dewey should go, go forward. All right. See, one of the Deweys has, has gone through... Yeah. Okay, next up we have John Quincy Adams, number seven seed, versus Winfield Scott Hancock, a number two seed. Yes, so John Quincy Adams, of course, attained the presidency in controversial fashion when he won in a contingent election in the House of Representatives when none of the four candidates running for president got a majority of the vote. They, people called it a corrupt bargain because he promised one of his opponents Henry Clay to be Secretary of State, and that really upset Andrew Jackson, who ended up beating him in 1832. John Quincy Adams called Jackson violent and unstable. It's most famous for like the coffin handbill, which was like attack ad handed out that had like all these pictures of coffins and being like, these are all the people Jackson killed in duels and stuff. <laughs> 
But Quincy Adams, as far as like his actual ideas, uh, he supported the American system, which Henry Clay supported as well, which was, you know, just these sort of like vigorous investments in infrastructure and then also high tariffs to protect the American economy. Compared to Jackson, he was an anti-populist. And of course, why wouldn't you be if you were an Adams, right? If your family had had gone back all those years in Tony, Massachusetts. He also, as far as ideas for his, his term, he wanted to establish a national university. He wanted to increase relations with countries of Latin America. And he had all these ideas, but Congress was not interested in any of them. So they did not go through and he lost re-election. Excellent. Winfield Scott Hancock. So this was the election of 1880, where he was running against James A. Garfield. Uh, Hancock was the Democrat. Garfield was the Republican. Hancock lost that election. He got 48.2% of the vote. A very, very close election. Garfield only got 48.3% of the vote. There was not like a lot of difference between the candidates in this race. Hancock was against protective tariffs. He was the guy you may remember for our first round. He thought tariffs should be a local issue. (laughs) That is, sorry to interrupt, but that's kind of up there with Trump being like, so what do you think should happen in Israel and Palestine? And he's like, well, you know, whatever they can agree on. <laughs> right. he, he being Hancock, he wanted to decrease Chinese immigration. So, by the way, did Garfield at the time. Hancock claimed Garfield was corrupt. This was not, for being such a close election, I mean, I guess that's what happened when you're running on the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you're going to get half the people. I mean, I got to be honest, Mike, I, I think Quincy Adams should advance just because Han- Hancock advanced by like a stroke of luck that he was against Ross Perot. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. Adams had actual ideas. Yes. And a national university would be cool. Right. I am looking forward to when Dewey and Adams go up because I am determined to vindicate both Thomas Dewey and Quincy Adams. And we're going to have to make a choice. Mm-hmm. But this is not that discussion. So. I agree. Adams advances, Hancock barely gets any any episode time at all. And we will take a commercial break and be right back. Hi, I'm Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And we're the hosts of the Post Writers podcast, Watching Mates. It's our podcast in which we explore the trends in film under each post-war presidency and reflect on how presidents and the zeitgeist of the era shaped the movies of their time. So be sure to check it out wherever podcasts are found or on thepostwriter.com. And we're back with our last four matchups in the last half of the second round of floor fight here. Welcome back, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> thanks <laughs> well, for th- having me back to the podcast. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks to you, man. So we have the number 16 seed, Martin Van Buren again, uh, from 1848 this time. He won in his play-in round. He won against number one seed Grover Cleveland last yeah. last round. But he's he's up now here again. And we have William Jennings Bryan in 1908, a number eight seed. Yeah, so Martin Van Buren, we talked a bit about him earlier in 1848, which is after he has not been president for a little bit, he decides to run as a member of the Free Soil Party, which, as you could probably guess from the name, was sort of an anti-slavery party, and he had an anti-slavery platform. He said that it was the founder's intention to eliminate slavery eventually, and that the federal government could do this. He supported the Wilmot Proviso, which would outlaw slavery in territory seized during the Mexican-American War, a war he failed to prevent. And he had this kind of broad coalition of anti-slavery Democrats, Whigs, and members of the Liberty Party, which was a smaller anti-slavery party. But he basically just kind of ran because he really hated the Democratic nominee who 
it was this guy named Lewis Cass, who, we, who we've already talked about. And it was because Cass was a fan of popular sovereignty in which the residents of each territory decided whether or not to have slavery. And of course, this led to like that bloody Kansas war, which was had not happened yet. But Van Buren really just wanted to siphon enough democratic support from Cass to prevent him from winning. <laughs> which, hey, I, I think you have to kind of respect the pettiness there. <laughs> which is, honestly that was also kind of what's like ralph nader's strategy also he really just didn't like al gore anyway tell us about william jennings bryan yeah so in 1908 william jennings bryan this is his third and final run for president as a democrat this time against the aforementioned william howard taft so jennings bryan you may remember he he was this populist democrat big with the labor movement in this election, he wanted national banks to require deposit insurance. He got the American Federation of Labor's presidential endorsement, I believe the first one ever. Most of his progressive policies ended up being adopted by the Republicans, as you may have heard from our Theodore Roosevelt part a few minutes ago. Basically, yeah, the, the free silver issue is no longer so much a thing. So Brian campaigned on, on progressivism. He attacked government by privilege. His campaign slogan was, shall the people rule? Question mark. But Taft ended up winning this election. Taft got got 51.6% of the vote, and William Jennings Bryant got his worst loss of his three campaigns. He got only 43%. This is good. We get to cull either a Van Buren or a Bryan, both yes, of whom yeah. we have too yeah. many of. Exactly. So who do we cull? I weirdly kind of feel like we like Van Buren more than we like Bryan, even though <laughs> Bryan is certainly more in kind with our modern views. But this is not peak Brian. If anything, this is worst <laughs> Brian. This is also not peak Van Buren. No. Okay. I think we both like that Van Buren didn't like slavery. I won't speak for you on that ne issue, but... Neither um. did William Jennings Bryan, but yes. <laughs> I mean, here's my thing. And I, I could go either way here, but here's my thing. If Martin Van Buren wins the presidency by some miracle in 1848, and we have a president from the Free Soil Party in charge of the federal government... Would that not just immediately cause a civil war? <laughs> yeah, it's not great. You you make a good point. I mean, he's a former president, but he is not running in my beloved two-party system. No. And we aren't huge Taft fans either. Maybe Teddy Roosevelt gets his beloved nomination if, if Taft loses. But I, I honestly feel like Martin Van Buren is a better president all around than Brian ever could have been interesting in in that he was president <laughs> and in that like america seemed to be okay with him being president till they didn't re-elect him i guess but america never once elected william jennings bryan in fact they were pretty consistent he should not be the president that is true and martin van buren is a clever guy he was very academic and bryan was very populist mm. certainly very smart but, you know, we have this kind of intellectual wing of the Democratic Party in Van Buren 80 years before we have this populist wing of the party in Bryan. Yes. I'm giving Van Buren a fighting chance here. I think I, I agree with you that electing a free soil party person, then again, he would defeat Zachary Taylor, who is not like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> who would die months into his term. Right. <laughs> How's this for, it's not really that galaxy-brained take, is that we've talked about how we think Wilson did some good as president, right? Mm -hmm. And he certainly should have been president over Taft. And we said, turns out, uh, Theodore Roosevelt as well. Is there a case to be made that if Bryan wins in 1908, we don't get the Wilson presidency? And therefore, that is bad. So it's not enough that we're making a positive case for Wilson. Now we have to defend why Wilson must be the president. 
we have talked about Brian's views on internationalism, right? He has said some kind of vague things. It's like, oh, we should be not imperialist at all, but that the U.S. should be like the arbiter of the world. Yeah, like which, a force for good, a global force for good. Right, which those are kind of two incompatible views in my mind. Yes. I think Brian would really struggle in a war situation, but you made a good point about Van Buren. You may very well get maybe a mini civil war or a full-scale civil war earlier Mm -hmm. in the mid-1800s. I'm inclined to think Van Buren is a better pick for war over Brian. I don't know. Well, okay, actually, (laughs) I think I've silently talked myself into Brian now, though, because I think that he'll probably do the things we like about Woodrow Wilson, right? I can't see him not supporting a federal income tax or a treasury, well, I don't know how he'd feel about a treasury system, but mm. in fact, you could argue if Van Buren was president, we, we would have had a treasury system earlier, or federal reserve system. Is that the same thing? Uh, I'm out no. of my depth there. No, they okay. are not the same thing. Okay. Because Wilson found the federal reserve. They central bank. And there just wasn't one until Wilson was president? For a period, yes. Okay. Um, this is, there was also like, money was issued by banks for, for most of that time, right? It's, yeah. There wasn't yeah. a dollar. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> so I sounded, I know, totally out of my depth and idiotic right there. But, and, okay, so let's say he wins in 1908. Either he wins in 1912 or he loses. Even if he wins, he probably doesn't run for a third term because people mm-hmm. just didn't do that back then, which means he probably doesn't, ha- I mean, he, yes, he has to deal with World War One in the sense that it would still be happening in Europe, but, you know, he might not have to get involved. He is also Secretary of State under President Wilson. So I, I actually think, I think I want to go with Brian. I, I'm okay with that. I, I think the third okay. party Van Buren is fine. Not a direction we should take. <laughs> yeah, we were so close to a coin flip. Yeah. I also realize that if we coin flip, if we have to do a coin flip, like I'm going to have to do you, like, do you have coins near you? Oh yeah. I, okay, I come prepared. Good, Mike. I <laughs> All right. That's good. I'm glad somebody does. <laughs> what kind of floor manager would I be? <laughs> um, all right. Brian advances. It's the end of the Van Buren play in exciting path. <laughs> yeah. But whatever. All right. He got to, a good run. Yeah, he did. Another name that we have in this bracket a lot. We have Henry Clay. Uh, this time in 1832, this is the mid clay we've talked about. Uh, he's a number 12 seed versus John C. Fremont, a number 13 seed. Yeah, so Henry Clay, at this point, he is a senator from Kentucky after being the Secretary of State and before that, Speaker of the House and a, con- and a congressman from Kentucky. He is a quote-unquote national Republican, which is you know was the precursor to the Whigs, basically the anti-Jackson coalition of the Democratic Republicans. So Jackson, of course, ran against the National Bank and uh, against elites and for removing Indians, but Clay of- ran on supporting a national bank instead and of course on his american system which was you know all these internal improvements um tariffs things like that he would end up losing he only got 37 percent of the vote and that actually kind of spurred the creation of the Whig party yeah so john c fremont he was the republican party's first ever presidential nominee in the election of 1856 he was an explorer mexican-american war veteran briefly senator from california basically what happened in this election is all, all these candidates were nominated because they had like <laughs> not been in the country and no one wanted to take an issue on slavery, but <laughs> Fremont like did take an issue with slavery because he was a Republican. So Fremont ended up getting 33% of the vote, losing to uh, Buchanan in the 1856 election. Fremont's kind of rallying call was free speech, free press, free soil, free men, Fremont, and victory. <laughs> Fremont is not like super beloved... Uh, we mentioned among like Native Americans, um, mm. though he is 
a very famous figure in the American West. This is an easy one. I think 1832 clay is peak clay. I, I think this is when you need Henry Clay the most. Because it stops the, the Jacksonian tide. Yes. We've, we've talked a lot about the election of 1824, but remember that clay is like the third choice in that one. It's mm -hmm. really Quincy Adams versus Jackson. And I think Clay in 32 is the nominee in his own right at a time when he is most important. He is running like explicitly against Jackson. Fremont does not strike me as a very competent leader. Yeah. He seems just kind of like a weird guy. Yes. Like, you know, I, I, you know, like when, when John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln, he said six Sempertiramis, which means death to tyrants. Yeah. I could see Fremont becoming like an actual tyrant, like the Civil War, and using that as like an excuse to like consolidate power and turn it into like Fremontistan. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't have particularly strong feelings that Fremont would be a good president. And mm. yeah, I think if you elect a Republican in 1856, you probably get a civil war in the next four years. Yeah. And I don't think he should be president for that time. I think you need someone a little stronger and better. I also think Fremont is a little more malleable than he lets on. Yeah. Whereas like everything about Henry Clay in 1832 is like right on the nose. He's running against Jackson's kind of terrible agenda, like removal of mm. Indians for a national bank, Henry Clay is. And Henry Clay wants a federal system, roads and infrastructure and all of this. I see no reason not to send this Clay through over any other. Yeah, no, I I, I, uh, I agree. I Yeah, I, I think you've made a good point. Did Jackson run for nullification or did he run against it? I thought that was like a John C. Calhoun thing. And Calhoun is Jackson's running mate? No, or Calhoun he, was he in the last election. Right, That's, he he explicitly wasn't because they had a different... <laughs> the reason why the nullification crisis happened was because Jackson actually continued a tariff that the nullifiers thought would be nullified if he was president. Ah, He was not enough of a nullifier for Calhoun. Right. But yes, it's uh, all to say that, yes, I agree with your take on Henry Clay, and I, I just don't trust John C. Fremont. Okay. All right. Clay in 1832 advances. Next up, we have another William Jennings Bryan, this time from 1900, and he is up against Gerald Ford. Yes. Yeah, so this was Bryan's second run and his second run against William McKinley. He was still running on free silver and antitrust, um, but he also focused more so on anti-imperialism and expansionism. Hint, hint, the Spanish-American War, which had just ended. And he was against annexation of the Philippines. And he actually got the support of the American Anti-Imperialist League, who had previously supported McKinley, which I'm sure they felt like such fools for doing so. <laughs> but much like, well, I guess until very recently, people didn't really care about foreign policy then. <laughs> and it didn't stick. So he just kind of went back to his whole populist shtick. And it Unfortunately, that did not work for him either. Cool. Gerald Ford. He was president. He was a Republican president. He uh, ascended to the presidency after Richard Nixon resigned. Ford basically pledged to continue Nixon's not shady, <laughs> illegal agenda. <laughs> Um, he he had what the, was called like the Rose Garden strategy, where he you know he he basically just just kind of governed shamelessly. It was not a very issues focused campaign in 1976, but Ford had wanted to end price controls on natural gas. He pardoned Nixon, kind of controversially. That came back to bite him a bit. He ran sort of against big government too, but Ford got 48 percent in that election. He lost to Jimmy Carter, who got 50 percent. We we were very kind to Gerald Ford in the first round. I even said that I think Gerald Ford has a good case for why he should continue to be president. 
Yeah, I do stand by that. <laughs> I, I think I do. We eliminated Jimmy Carter in the last round. I Why not? If not now, then when? If not Ford, then who? How comfortable do you feel giving Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld an even earlier chance to continue to work in the White House? <laughs> I mean, what are they going to do? <laughs> My my feeling with the 1976 election is that neither of those men really inspire much confidence, <laughs> honestly. Sure. Um, I don't think Carter was a very effective leader. And I think that if Ford had never basically, I won't say stumbled, but if he had not just almost miraculously become president, I don't know that he ever would have like run. I don't know. I Can you make the case against Brian? In 1900? So... <laughs> McKinley dies, right, mm-hmm. and and Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, becomes president in 1901, so the year after this. I don't know. I, I, I like this Brian more than I like Brian in 1908 is the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Is I think this is when you need to really embrace a better monetary policy. And, you know, by 1908, you're a little late on advocating for some of these things because they've also been assumed by the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. I mean, everyone is kind of on board with like this this eight-hour workday mm-hmm. in that brief little window, right? Whereas here, not so much. I, I, I think this is peak Brian. <laughs> But I also, I, I don't know that I love the idea of a William Jennings Bryan presidency. I, I cannot make a very good case for that he would be a very good president. He is not particularly experienced. He yeah. had been a congressman very briefly from Nebraska. And I don't like when populists get into the White House. They don't really <laughs> like, they, I don't know, they don't do very well. Mm-hmm. And they often end up doing a lot of bad things. And Gerald Ford is certainly not a populist. And I think he has, I think you could convince me that that Gerald Ford would have been a better president from 77 to 81 than Jimmy Carter would have been, for sure. I also think that that probably leads to a Democrat getting elected in 1980. Mm. How do you feel about us not getting the Department of uh, Education and Energy? Oh, now you're making a case for Carter, man. What's going on? Oh, I, I'm just, I'm just, you know. I know what Rick Perry would think about well, it, but yeah. I want to know what you think. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know. I guess those are both fine departments. Yeah, I mean, I, I bring that up to, to partly illustrate a point where it's like, I can't really think of anything that Carter did that had he not been elected, we would have missed a lot outside of those two things because everything he right. tried to do that was not deregulate the economy was defeated. There, There is an alternate universe where Jimmy Carter is successful in his, his energy policy and everything we're talking on is like run on solar power now and it would be awesome, but... <laughs> Unfortunately, that didn't come to pass. I mean, Ford wanted to end price controls. Yeah. Um, he was certainly, I think, more right about the economy than Jimmy Carter was. Did Carter not basically end up doing what Ford would have done? I, I suppose. Jimmy Carter actually is behind a lot more deregulation than people think. Like the whole transportation deregulation. That was not Reagan. That was very mm. much Carter, which is actually to Carter's credit because I I think that is a good thing. Does Gerald Ford nominate Paul Volcker to the Federal Reserve? Because that's very important. In a good way or a bad way? In a, in a, in a good way. In that you have like this, this nightmarish stagflation mm-hmm. in the late 1970s. And, you know, Volcker kind of like takes over and like destroys the economy to kill inflation. I guess I guess Ford was already in that direction, right? As he was trying to get rid of price controls because that was not working. I, I don't know. I, I just feel like I trust Ford in the White House more than I trust Brian. 
I think that is that is why I come down probably more in favor of Ford. But it is not a str- this is like a five out of ten for me. Yeah, I'm going back to the the Jenga set theory of history. Sure, <laughs> and I actually think that in contrast to the first matchup we did. Yeah, I have a hard time seeing a Brian. Politically, I'm probably more sympathetic to William Jennings Bryan. I also have a hard time of seeing a, Br- a Brian presidency succeeding. Perhaps in a way he would have become his heir's Jimmy Carter. <laughs> um, and it's one of those things, too, where it's like we, we got to, I mean, outside of the anti-imperialism stuff, which I don't think anybody was really going to end. We got there eventually on, on right. uh, the progressivism. I'll, I'll, I'll give in on Ford. I'm five out of 10 on Brian too. Like I said, this is peak Brian. If you have one sentence for why we should go for Brian over Ford, you could convince me, but I have yet to hear it. I guess the problem is I just don't feel very good about either of them. I, no, I, I don't either. The biggest thing I think it was like, it'd be nice if we had left the Philippines earlier. That's like the, the, the biggest thing I can say. It would have been nice if we got to certain labor reforms and economic reforms earlier, right? But there was part of me that wonders, like, the fact that we got to those anyway, like, does it make a Brian presidency? I don't know enough about early 20th century politics to make this bold proclamation I'm about to make. But <laughs> <laughs> the thing about the Democrats and William Jenny Bryan's in particular at that time was that his base was, like, rural, right? And he had the support of, like, farmers, basically. Hmm. The thing about the Republicans, they had a much more, like, urban appeal, Right. Which also meant that they had more access to like the centers of power in like New York. I think you could make an argument that Theodore Roosevelt's style of progressivism was more important because the progressive steps he ended up taking that set up, you know, Wilson and Taft and a bunch of other and I guess eventually Franklin Roosevelt. It, it helped to kind of make maybe some of the power brokers be like, okay, this is not sort of like a bottom-up revolution that we're going to have to squash, right? Right. Like, I feel like there's a chance that there's like an attempted coup of Brian as president. <laughs> yes, and, and I, if you want to go that that far out, I, I think you look at Ford and Nixon's, I mean, more especially Ford, right? And and I, I would think of, I kind of think of Ford as like a Rockefeller Republican, just just perhaps he, not. He, go, he governed like one. Yeah, yeah. Just not very charismatically. And no. it's kind of that same thing, right? It is you get kind of the elites in the Republican Party who are fine with Ford and you can get some middle class people. You're not mm-hmm. getting this like bottom up revolution from the Reaganites. That appeals to me. Do I think Ford is the best president we never had had he been president those four years? No, but I, I do kind of think we would have been better off had he been president those four years. I'm not entirely sure I agree, but I am fine with putting them through the next round. <laughs> okay. Okay. Forward advances. And we are on to our last matchup of round two. We have number 10 seed Al Smith versus number 15 seed Henry Clay in 1824. So Al Smith was the governor of New York. A lot, a lot of these in the in the spread. A lot, a lot of New York folks. He ran in 1928 against Herbert Hoover. So a very conservative time fiscally in America. And Smith was actually pretty conservative fiscally as well. Actually, it kind of did him in among the Democrats' traditional rural base. Another thing that did him in was the fact that he was Catholic. <laughs> yes. um, people did not like that at the time. They did not think Catholics should be powerful, especially if you were, you know, in the South or something. In fact, he didn't even carry his home state of New York at the time. He was also, another thing that actually hurt him at the time was that he was against prohibition. And that was like his big differentiator from Hoover. He wanted alcohol to be legal, 
which I'm sure people who were racist against Catholics thought was hilarious considering <laughs> <laughs> the Irish population tends to be more Catholic than not. So yeah, he ended up losing because of the three Ps, as one reporter called it, prosperity, prohibition, and prejudice. Oh. So Henry Clay in 1824, this is the name you've probably heard the most in this podcast. In 1824, ran for president. He was Speaker of the House. He was from Kentucky. He was a Democratic Republican in this election. He got 13% of the vote, and he stood for that 19th century Hamiltonian ideal, the American system, central bank infrastructure, tariffs to protect industry. He was personally opposed to slavery, but he did own slaves. He was a slavery gradualist in many ways, kind of a fight the fights you can win. He lost this election in 1824. He got third place, but he was nominated by John Quincy Adams to be his secretary of state this was that corrupt bargain election we keep talking about where adams defeated jackson after a contingent election in the house during which clay was speaker <laughs> so we we let clay advance pretty easily against james blaine in the first round al smith versus adlai stevenson in 1952 which was more of a debate i feel like we kind of decided that Smith should advance because maybe the depression doesn't go so poorly at the beginning. <laughs> I don't, like because it was more of like an anti-Hoover argument, I think. Right. I don't know. What, what's your initial read? My initial read is that Al Smith, even though he might have been better than Herbert Hoover, was still like against the New Deal, and I, to me, it's just kind of like would would I have loved it if Prohibition ended earlier? Sure. Um, <laughs> That probably you were very much good. alive, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you it was rough those few years. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, you know, that would be like a positive commerce campaign. But outside of that, I can't really point to you. The Great Depression still happens, right? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I just, I just don't, I don't see him making a meaningful enough difference. Whereas I think we've kind of like taken like a broadly anti-Jackson position on this podcast. Which I think is a fair position. Again, I, I have I have no evidence to make this claim, but, you know, if Henry Clay is president and is able to vigorously build infrastructure and build up industry, maybe there is no Great Depression in the first place. <laughs> oh my God. That is a... That is I, a that very is, long I, view of history, Mike. It is, yes. And I don't... Like I said, I, that, is, that is kind of mostly a joke, but... <laughs> I think I, you know, maybe outside of like the very aggressive tariffs, which maybe, you know, different time and place, maybe they were more necessary. And I'm sure like general like, anti-British sentiment at the time probably made them more palatable. But yeah, yeah I, I just think that Clay had like a bold vision for the future of the country that I think slavery issue aside, which is a thing he kind of had to live with back in the day. Edward Smith did not have a grand vision, right? He was just a guy who wanted to be president and wanted everyone to be able to drink again, which, hey. Yes. I think we agreed Al Smith would have handled the initial four years of the Depression better than Hoover. Mm -hmm. Barely. Would we agree with that? Yeah, I think it'd be hard to handle it worse. And we kind of made a case that Hoover could, you know, do a lot more good if he's not president. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But you almost, I do feel, you know, having studied at least 20th century American economic history, you very much need to learn those lessons of what government inaction entails mm -hmm. during the Depression to get to a more sustainable economic policy that I think has more or less prevailed for the last hundred-ish years. When there's a recession, we spend more money, whether there is a Republican or Democrat. And Republicans complain about it a lot, but they still do it every time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can look at how Trump responded to a recession, how Bush responded to a recession. They all spent 
a ton of money. And that's that's kind of how you do it. And I think you learn that lesson. It was a tough lesson to learn, but you needed mm-hmm. to learn it at that point. And yeah, I, I, I think you're right. <laughs> There's a reason Clay is doing so well. He's usually, usually in the right. Um, yeah, I think so. So I, I think we give it to Clay too. All right. And that, that wraps up the round, man. Yeah, I think that was a very spirited debate. Good stuff. I think we really hashed out a lot of stuff. But that that ends the round of 32. We've now gone from 24 candidates to 16. Any 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 surprising results to you, Lars? The, the Ford v. Brian, I, I do think is surprising. I came prepared yeah. to... I actually assumed you would be giving the more pro-Ford argument there because you, <laughs> you were pretty bullish on Ford in the first round. I was surprised that Brian advanced in 1908 against Van Buren because we've also been very pro-Van Buren this far. I think that was the most surprising. I think Quincy Adams and Dewey were very obvious. Harrison yeah. advancing over Nixon. That was a that was an early semi surprise. That too. And also I think honestly Van Buren beating Dewey forty four is kind of surprising, considering all the love we gave Dewey last round. But yeah, I think I think you kinda of covered it. I was surprised how protracted the Ford versus Brian discussion was. Yes. I mean I will say we have now that we've completed round two. All three Henry Clays have advanced into the Sweet 16. <laughs> Only two of the William Jennings Bryans have, though. Um, That's interesting. And we only have the Martin Van Buren up for re-election, who has advanced, too, of our, yeah. of our frequent flyer candidates. <laughs> we, we may end up with, like, a Clay versus Clay matchup at some point. It's actually a very likely outcome. Yeah. yeah. When was he more necessary? Yeah. In, in a similar vein, we're looking ahead to matches that are coming down the pike. What are, you, what are you most looking forward to? So from this episode, I think that the Thomas Dewey in 1948 versus John Quincy Adams, I think mm-hmm. that is the match to watch. I think from this half of the map, I think that will be the hardest to settle. That is mm-hmm. hard because yeah. we've been very weirdly pro John Quincy Adams. Yeah, I, I agree with you on Dewey versus Adams. I also think that um, Brian 08 versus Clay 32 could be interesting. Yeah, I, I think you know how I'm going to come down on that one. <laughs> yeah, I think I do. Well, we'll just have to wait to find out how you come down on that, as will you, the listeners. So if you want to find out how Lars comes down on that, you should subscribe <laughs> to this podcast, wherever podcasts are found. Or, of course, just find it on thepostwriter.com, where you can stay tuned in live with our updating bracket at thepostwriter.com slash floorfight. You can see how each candidate fared as we whittle them down over the course of the series. They're almost all whittled down. We're doing a lot of, a lot of whittling. So much whittling. Except Henry Um, Clay. Yeah, yes, that's true. I am excited to enter round three because we will be advancing at an episodic level from here on out. Everyone's going to advance the next round at once. Yeah. Tweet us as the postwriter or email us at contact at thepostwriter.com to let us know uh, what picks you would have made, what we got wrong, and how unfair we were to William Jennings Bryan or (laughs) Al Smith or whoever your favorite candidate. There is definitely like, I can almost guarantee there is a pocket of William Bryan stands who are very upset on the way we've treated him throughout. I, we, I can see it We keep it happening. letting him, adv- I mean, we've let him advance until, you know, this episode, yeah. so. Well, we'll see you next episode where you'll find out how far we he does end up advancing uh, when we do our sweet 16 in our bracket on next episode of Floor Fight.